You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news and Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, this is Dr. John DeYard, and welcome to LifeSpa.com, where we prove the ancient medical wisdom of Ayurveda with modern science. And today, uh, I am going to interview one of my favorite authors, author of the best-selling book, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, Dan Millman. He's the author of 17 books. He's a uh, black belt in Aikido, former world champion, trampoline athlete, uh, coach at Stanford, professor at UC Berkeley and Oberlin College. He's a member of the UC Berkeley Athletic Hall of Fame and the U.S. Gymnastics Hall of Fame. Um, I am thrilled to interview him about the the concepts of, um, of, you know, my first book was called Body, Mind, and Sport. And it's all about, you know, this idea that uh, we can achieve full human potential uh, in life through sport. And I really feel like that's uh, a big part of uh, Dan Millman's message that he's been writing for 40 years of writing. And he's a brilliant author, a brilliant man. I'm so glad to have him here. Dan, thanks for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure having a chance to chat with you, John. You know, Dan, I, 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 um, I love the idea of your books, you know, teaching through story, telling stories about, about how people can really begin to access their, their full human potential. And I know that's a big part of what you do. And I want to keep curious, like, you've written so many books, you have so much to say, and I want to dive into a lot of that. But I wonder if you could kind of hone it down and say, this is the one thing that I've learned all these years, training athletes, uh, you know, and for your own performance, that, that is the biggest takeaway for you, not only, you know, on the tramp, but in your life. Uh, those big takeaways are always a challenge. I, um, you know, a man named Stanislaw Lech once said, I, I wanted to tell the world just one word. Unable to do that, I became a writer. <laughs> and... <laughs> I've had to write 17 books to express what I wanted to say, but I will tell a brief story since you mentioned stories. Um, uh, Aldous Huxley, the author of Brave New World, when he was uh, in hospice care near death, his good friend Houston Smith, who literally wrote the book on world religions, Houston asked Aldous, he said, Aldous, you've traveled the world studying every spiritual tradition from all major cultures, even minor ones. He said, is there any way to summarize all that you've learned? And Professor Huxley said, I'm a little embarrassed to say I can probably summarize it all in about six words. Try to be a little kinder. Now, that's, that's a wonderful message. And that was a true story about um, what Aldous said uh, after everything he'd learned. But I, I think dealing with the, the story of athletes and the athletic journey, the journey of training and physical endeavor, it's such a great master metaphor of our lives. Uh, I've found that most athletes have learned universal or spiritual laws through their training, but they rarely are conscious of those laws because they're so busy focused on points and games and matches and wins and losses that they don't realize the gift inside the wrapping of whatever their particular sport is. Um, and so in my own journey, yes, I, you know, who would have guessed that it would have changed my entire life and, and set my destiny in motion, really, um, because I love to jump up and down on a trampoline. 
Who would have guessed that? But it led to a college scholarship and uh, the championships and a, a coaching job at Stanford University in gymnastics and on and on. And my writing career from that single thing. So coming around to your question, more and more I tend to speak to people about uh, the wisdom of not comparing ourselves to other people. Um, and and because it's a profound disrespect for our own process. You know, when I've, when I've taught back somersaults, for example, to different athletes, some people learn them quicker than others. And yet those who take longer to learn them often learn them better than those who learn them faster. So my message then, my takeaway, uh, is about respecting our own process and trusting ourselves and our life unfolding rather than always comparing it to someone else to see how well we're doing. Well, you know, that, that sort of, you know, really deflates the whole wisdom of competition, right? I mean, our whole world's all about, you know, winning at any cost. And, and, I, and I, in my book, Body Minds, four years ago, talked about what competition really is, which is, you know, how well you can connect with yourself uh, is the real competition. It's not about beating the other person. And I know you talked a little bit about the benefits of relaxation um, and how that, you know, we talk about how my best race is my easiest race and how athletes stumble upon this, this runner's high, rarely take it into the rest of their life, but they've tasted it, they've experienced it, as, as, you, as you pointed out. And I wonder if you could share with us some of the, some of the, 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 the insights that you have um, with regard to competition, because our whole world seems to be built upon this comparing ourselves with others and then taking them out or being better than them. Well, I, I would love to speak about that. It's, thank you for introducing that subject. In fact, uh, one of the major uh, problems with the world today and our survival as a species may actually depend on this is making the shift from competitive mind to collaborative mind uh, based on a recognition of our essential unity. It has to come from there. When we begin to see the same consciousness in others uh, as in ourselves, the same light shining through these billions of different eyes and experiences, when that becomes a reality, we are then able to make that shift rather than always asking, well, what's for my self-interest? What's for my highest good? We can ask, what is for the highest good of all concerned here? Because in a sense, we identify, we realize we're all in this together. So to use a more homely example, coming down from the abstract idea, um, uh, more specifically, you know, people cite Darwin as the proof, you know, the fitness, uh, the survival of the fittest, yeah. that it's all about tooth and nail and all that. But the people ignore Darwin's significant writings that he did on how species that collaborate have a better chance of survival than those who merely compete. But most people don't know about that aspect of his teaching. And when I play the game of tennis, to use a sports analogy, there is no opponent across the net for me. Um, to me, what I view across that net is my teacher and my student. And they may not be intending in that moment to be my teacher, but without them, how can I improve? They're showing me my weak areas. They're, making, they're challenging me to do my best. So when I play the game of tennis, it's a competitive game. I have nothing against competitive games. They're part of our sports culture. However, I don't have competitive mind because I do view them as my teacher and my student. So I bring less tension to the game, less hostility, 
more just flow into the game with me because I'm their teacher as well. So we're taking turns being each other's teacher and student. It's a whole different environment. It's more pleasurable to play with that attitude. So even though it's a competitive sport, I'm not saying let's be radical and banish all competitive sports. Um, I'm saying let's play them with a collaborative mind. And it, where, where another athlete falls down, like in football, and you help them up, you know, because we're all in this together. We're playing a game. People forget that life is a game we play as if it matters. And certainly sports can teach us that with the right approach. Yeah. Wow. This is, this is amazing. So, so beautiful. It reminds me of a, a study that I've written about recently that uh, they took some magpies couple of magpies and they tried to open up some locked food and they couldn't figure it out. They put another couple of maybe 20 or so magpies in there and they figured it out in short order. Then they went back into the research and they were like, how did we triple our brain size? You know, was it the cooking? Was it the meat? Was it the fishing? Was it the, you know, the, the, you know, the uh, eating of grain, you know, different things, you know, or the theories. And what they have actually discovered, which is actually a brand new theory, was it wasn't any of those things. It was us coming together as community. As our tribes became bigger, we came to growing into more civilizations, we came together. And when we came together, that's what tripled our brain size. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't competing or comparing or being better than. It was actually when we actually came together in community, which in a way is exactly what you're what you're, you know, talking about is that when you're on the court and you're fighting against somebody, you're actually, you know, you're just trying to beat them and you create separation and, and we are driven by the reward, the chemistry of reward, the dopamine response. If I beat that person, I get the win, I get the gold medal, I get the reward. And we don't realize that that reward is fleeting and you can deplete those, those dopamine receptors and, you've, and like athletes, when they retire, oftentimes they become depressed. Um, particularly the extreme athletes who lived on dopamine, they really become depressed. So, and so I'm curious uh, about that. If you could talk about, you know, how does that reward chemistry, which we're all addicted to, which is sort of our culture, how does that get in the way of our true inner potential and perhaps the enjoyment of the game and the enjoyment of our life? Well, I, you open up another wonderful string here. Um, you know, Today, it's called crowdsourcing, but it's based on the wisdom that no one is smarter than all of us. A jury is smarter than the individuals in that jury, which I experienced once being on a jury. Um, and in the sense, what, one thing I love about movies, uh, good movies, there are a lot of bad ones too, of course, but uh, is film is the ultimate collaborative art. No one person can really make a great film. You need uh, someone to score the film, the music and the directing and the, and the set design. You need all, oh, well, everybody's seen the credits of a movie, sees how many people are involved, experts in their own field to make a movie or build a building. One person cannot build a building. So we can create wonderful edifices and wonderful creative art, as you say, uh, working with, with other people. So this whole idea of the dopamine and the competition and, and the endorphin high will, yeah, we can get those things because, but it's not because of the competition. It's because of the perceived stakes um, that matter to people. So they go into that flow, that zone. Um, it becomes important in the moment, but it's no different than a violinist who is about to perform for an audience. They're not competing with anyone, hopefully not 
if it's an orchestra, they're not competing with the other violinists. They're simply going for their best performance, which is why I recommend to athletes or anyone in business or any other field of life is don't strive for success. Because that's defined by, you know, if it's defined by beating other people, that's, that doesn't sound like much fun. But define, go for excellence. That's something we can all control moment to moment. We can pay attention. We can be mindful to use that, you know, that popular term. We can pay attention. We can relax as much as we can. All athletes know everything works better. We can talk about that. I'd love to get into that whole power of relaxation. But that's why I say don't strive for success. That is not in our control. And what I mean by that is we can control our efforts in life, but we cannot control the outcomes. We can't control whether we sink a putt every time in golf or make a basket on doing free throws. But, but by making a good effort over time, we increase the odds of getting our desired outcomes over not making the effort. But I don't mean the effort in terms of effortful. I don't mean tension or in some kind of desperation or hyper-motivation. If we simply strive for excellence in what we do, that can make all the difference because that is within our control. So, so um, in your book, um, Body My Mastery, and by the way, you can, you can actually get more of uh, information about Dan's work and understand and all of his books, his best-selling books, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, which is a phenomenal book at danmillman.com. So please check that out. But in your book, um, Body My Mastery, you talk about not setting goals. And I imagine that is obviously to engage in a more process versus goal-oriented experience of life. So can you dive into that a little bit further and about why we should not set goals? Sure, sure. And, and actually, I, I would say something that um, paradoxically might be just the opposite as well. I don't think long-term goals are very realistic. Like I want to be in the Olympics. So I want to win the Ironman. Yeah. Those are long-term goals. And one person is going to do that. Maybe their stars align. Maybe they have a great day. That's not as realistic a goal as my goal today is to do uh, 30 push-ups, this many sit-ups, uh, you know, like going to the gym, doing this many reps. That's a short-term goal. But let me just share a story about, uh, you know, you, you probably know, maybe you've seen the Peaceful Warrior movie based on my first book. Yeah. They made a movie with Nick Nolte playing the old gas station uh, sage uh, I called Socrates. And in that film, there's a scene in which um, Dan and Socrates hike to the top of this big hill. Um, and Dan has this revelation. The character says, you know, Sock." I just realized that it's the journey that makes us happy, you know, not the destination. And there's a certain wisdom in that revelation because most of our life is spent on the journey, not just reaching the destination. And yet, without a destination in mind, there is no journey. We just wander around. So I do believe that we human beings are hardwired goal seekers. Uh, when I watch my grandchild, when uh, when my little granddaughter or grandson were very young, you know, infants crawling across the floor, they were heading for something. There's something they wanted, some sparkly thing they wanted to get to. So they weren't just crawling around to crawl around. That would be nice to exercise, but they were heading for something. And so to me, um, people are happiest when they are, I would define success. Let me put it this way. Success to me is making progress toward a goal that's meaningful to us. 
I think we're most absorbed in life, most engaged with life, most fulfilled actually, when we're moving toward a meaningful goal. So I, on the contrary, I, I don't uh, uh, put down goals. I, in fact, I wrote one book called Living on Purpose, another, the life you were born to live, another, the three, the four purposes of life. So I'm all for purpose and moving toward that and living a purposeful life moment to moment. Uh, I know my purpose in this moment, sharing with you. And you know your purpose and your listeners know their purpose in this moment. So we can always know our purpose or goal in the moment. And that's maybe the best one to focus on and do what we need to do in line with that, with that purpose. So that's what I would say about, um, uh, about goals. I, I'm all for them, just not too long-term or abstract goals. There's an, old, there's an old Ayurvedic saying that to respect the boundaries within the boundless and that uh, we set these goals and we stay in the process of accomplishing those goals we then find ourselves unlimited in our potential. Um, so sort of a, a do less, accomplish more, do nothing, accomplish everything. Sort of the idea that trying to get into that place where it's effortless. And you talk about three strategies in your book, uh, non-resistance, accommodation, and balance. And I wonder if you could, if you could kind of help us understand how, how we could use those principles in our life to experience at the very least the, the less is more approach and maybe even get a glimpse of what it means to do nothing and accomplish everything like that, you know, best race is my easiest race experience. Well, I was going to use an example when you mentioned relaxation. When I was playing golf, I learned to play golf just so I could play with my dad who loved it. Uh, around, uh, when he was around 85 years old, he golfed his age, which is pretty good, I think. Um, oh, yeah. So when I was a coach at Stanford, I had free access to the Stanford course. And, and so I would start to play some golf. And I was, it's a very Zen game, as you know. And I was learning some things. And I, of course, I'd heard many, many, many times, as most of us have who've played, uh, let the weight of the club head do the work. Don't try. Don't strain. Don't try to hit the ball or use too much strength. Just flow and let, let the, the club head swing. And I said, yes, 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 that sort of thing. But there's a big difference between understanding and realization. And I understood the concept of not trying too hard, letting the club head swing by itself. But one day I was out on the fairway using a three wood and I, I, want, I had a slow uphill, a long fairway. And I just said, what the hell? And I just didn't care. I just relaxed, let the club swing back. And then I went, whoop, just like a, no effort. I couldn't believe it. I heard that sweet sound when it hit the sweet spot of the club. And it just skimmed across the surface of the ground and slowly rose into the air. One of the best hits I ever made in golf. And it was like a transcendent experience. I was actually doing it. I finally uh, grasped or realized all that good advice about letting the weight of the club head do the work. Um, and of course, there's some preparation. We need to we need to develop the strength, the right muscle groups, the core, the stance, everything. But that allows us to let go. One of my favorite books is Zen and the Art of Archery by Eugen Herigl. He was a German professor. And he wrote, uh, and it's a lesson for any athlete or anyone, uh, Zen and the Art of Archery. Uh, and he talked about, you know, how Zen archers use no effort. They just, there was no one there doing the shot. And when Herigl, he was an archer, he practiced archery. And when he went to Germany or went to Japan on sabbatical, he went to a Zen master who 
agreed to teach him something about Zen archery or Kudo. And um, so Harrigal, you know, with some pride, pulled a big bow back and shot and he hit the bullseye. Uh, the targets in Zen archery are not that far away. Um, and he hit the bullseye and, and he looked at the, the teacher looked, waiting for his nod of approval and the teacher was shaking his head. And he couldn't understand. What, wait a minute, I grabbed the brass ring. I did the thing. I succeeded. You know, I hit the bullseye. How can you be shaking your head? But the point was, he was full of himself. He was doing the shot. And after months and months and months and months of practice, one and again, with form, flow, relaxation, pulling the bow, letting the bow be pulled by itself. One day he hit a shot and the, the, the arrow almost missed the target. It hit the corner of the target. But the master said, hi, which means yes. Um, because in that shot, Harrigal realized afterward there was no one there shooting. It was completely relaxed, using only large muscles without any sense of strain, and there was no one doing the shot. The bow was pulled, the arrow was let loose, and the arrow went to the target. And then he realized what he had accomplished, or what he hadn't accomplished. Um, so there's that I, approach to doing nothing and no one. And yet we are, it comes after a long paradoxical time of preparation and practice without, but without any sense of strain. To me, that's what non-resistance means. It, it's, it's been called the first spiritual law of acceptance or surrender. Uh, my, my colleague and friend, Byron Katie, that's what she teaches really, uh, mm -hmm. accepting everything that is. Don't resist it, flow with it. Like a good martial artist, take the force and use it your way. And so that's what I've been practicing in life ever since in any situation, not just martial arts situation. Yeah, well, I love this. You know, there's an aspect of the Vedic literature called Dhanarved, like Dhanarasana is the asana of the bow. And Dhanarasana is the Veda of transformation. It's been sort of mistranslated to be the military uh, Veda warring techniques, how to fight and how to win and all these techniques. But underneath it, you know, Veda is is considered truth or, or pure knowledge and it's always about inner transformation about the battle that we fight on the inside and i know a lot of your books you know the way of the peaceful warrior all the many of your books are really about you know fighting the battle that takes place on the inside in athletics we find ourselves stumbling upon you know that incredible golf shot or sinking a putt or the runner's high my best race is my 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 my, my easiest race but Fundamentally, these, these are all, I always felt like, like, you know, that exercise was really just a model for handling stress in your life from a calm place. Using the analogy of a hurricane, the bigger the eye, the more powerful the winds. And when you're pulling back a bow from the Vedic Donnerved perspective, every little movement of pulling back that bow has a, obviously, a exponential effect at the level of the target. So the idea was to pull back the bow, establish inner silence, inner peace, inner calm, your true self, and then shoot the arrow from that place. And, I, and, I, and I, I'd love for you to just kind of take the sports idea analogy and help us understand how to take, you know, because I know this is like, I really feel like this is what your life's work was really about, is to help people get a glimpse of how to, how to stop engaging in behavior based on patterns of behavior we created as young children to be safe and secure that we're still projecting on the screen today as adults. And how do we find our way to let the delicate petals of our flower open? and let something more vulnerable, more delicate, and more powerful, and more truthful out. So how can you help us understand 
maybe what you've learned along the way to help us do that? Well, I have another story in response. Uh, my wife and I recently returned. I, I was on a speaking tour of uh, uh, 10 different cities, seven countries in three weeks, a European speaking tour. And uh, while we were away, um, something happened in the news you may have not heard of, but I guess a couple million people did. Uh, that is Ivanka Trump actually cited a quote um, by the Greek philosopher Socrates. Um, and the quote was, direct all your energy, not in stopping the, fighting the, the old, but in developing the new. Um, and that quote, as it turned out, was not from the ancient Greek Socrates. She misquoted. It was actually from my Socrates, oh. from Way of the Peaceful Warrior. <laughs> and so it was on the blogosphere, on Newsweek.com, Salon, all these magazines. They said, no, this was actually from a book, Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Melvin. Um, and... Even Stephen Colbert, actually, in his opening monologue, um, uh, mentioned the quote in myself. How great. It, was, it was a fun thing. While we were traveling in Europe, this all came. So I had five minutes of, of fame before it all disappeared. Uh, Tempest in a teapot. Um, but the point was, uh, you say we develop these patterns. You know, a habit is an abstract idea. It simply means we tend to do something over and over whether it's a so-called good habit or a less good habit, less resourceful habit. Um, and focusing on the new rather than fighting the old is one key. Um, the, the way I would put it, and I think the way I put it in Body My Mastery, is that if, if we had to go to the supermarket and it was across a, a public square, but it had snowed that day, and the ground was covered by a, a smooth coat of snow, and we left our house to walk across the diagonal of that square, we would make footprints all the way across to the store. But let's say just before we get to the store, we realize we forgot our wallet. So we turn around, we walk back, probably through the same footprints in the opposite direction. And then we get our wallet, we turn around, we go back along the same track. And pretty soon now we've got a, an established pattern, the same track like our neurological tracks we develop by doing something more than once. We begin to develop these patterns. So uh, it's comfortable staying within those patterns. It starts to seem natural to us. We get used to them. And it feels uncomfortable if we uh, try another pattern. So understanding this, um, let's say I was a little boy learning to hit um, baseball and someone tossed the ball to me and I swung and missed because I'm a little boy. I'm just learning. And then I miss again and I miss again and I miss again. But let's say you were watching and you noticed I was swinging underneath the ball every time I kept swinging too low. The natural tendency would be to say, Hey, little Dan, um, swing higher. But the problem is I'm now used to swinging too low. So in trying to swing higher, I would undercompensate. I would want to stay close to where I've been doing it. It's now a pattern. So instead, if you told me, I want you to deliberately miss the ball five more times, but make sure you swing above the ball too high. And in trying to swing too high, I'm probably going to hit the ball. But the key is, and this is where the law of balance comes in. If we're out of balance in any area of our life, by working both sides, we find the center not by trying to eke our way, improving uh, incrementally toward the center, work both sides. If one shoots an arrow too low to the left, make sure the next shot goes too high to the right. Do the opposite. 
And if we do that in life, if someone speaks too quickly, people tell them, I can't understand you. You speak so quickly. We need to deliberately try to speak too slowly, over-articulating. By doing that, we find center for us. So that's how we can overcome patterns that aren't helping us by doing the working the other side. It's the quickest way I know of to accelerate one's learning curve. Wow. So if someone has a short temper, what would be the opposite of that? That they, you know, react, you know, in an, an aggressive way or even a passive aggressive way. What would be the advice yeah. there? Well, I spoke with an inmate in, a, in at San Quentin when I lived in California. I live in Brooklyn, New York now. You might hear some sound effects, yeah. sirens. I don't charge extra for that. <laughs> anyway, um, when I was in California, um, I spoke at San Quentin Prison to a group of, of inmates who were in the Inside Prison Project where they do yoga and meditation. It's an op- opt-in type of program. And one of the inmates had a real temper problem. And he came up to me after on a break and said, you know, I have a real problem with rage. And I said, no, you don't. And he turned to me and said, yes, I do. (laughs) And I said, no, you don't. And he said, yes, I do. And he was getting angry. And I said, no, rage is not a problem. Emotions pass through us like the weather. Rage is like a storm. Storms are a natural part of the weather patterns. I said, the problem is not that you feel angry or enraged. The problem is what you do when you're enraged. And a light bulb went on for him. He didn't have to change his emotions or not feel this or not feel that because emotions are not in our conscious control. We can't will ourselves to feel differently than how we feel at any given moment. Fortunately, though, feelings change all the time, um, moment to moment through our day. So he learned to focus on his behavior rather than trying to fix his emotions. Anger management courses are not about managing anger, they're about managing behavior, what we do when we're angry. So someone then can be very angry, and it'll pass, everything does, but they can be very angry and learn to behave differently, learn to take a deep breath, learn to shake loose of the body and relax, because that's under our control. And then they can be angry and relaxed, and that's a very different kind of anger than all the tension that tends to go with it. And that's also a way to deal with stress. Stress is an abstract idea. Um, But if we can focus on relaxing the body, taking a deep breath, then stress becomes something much more manageable and less debilitating. Stressful situations are a part of life because we care about life. We're engaged with it. Um, So when we notice a stressful situation, that's when to pay special attention to relaxing and taking some deep breaths. And uh, even, even a martial artist who's being attacked by multiple attackers, that's exactly when, when they have the most difficulty relaxing. That's when they need most to relax and move more in a flowing manner. So it sounds like, you know, you also talk about something you call natural order, how nature is never in a rush. You never see the Canadian well, geese puffing and puffing after a day of flying or a deer exhausted, right? So, so is that what you're talking about is sort of just, you know, stress is, in anger, these are part of the natural order. Talk to us about that. Well, yeah, it's more of a Taoist idea than the natural order, trusting the way or the Tao. Um, I, and and uh, 
I was working as an administrator uh, in a bodywork school some years ago uh, after I'd written Way of the Peaceful Warrior. It went out of print. Um, there's a long, funny story about that, but I won't take the time right now. Um, but until it came back into print again and then started getting out there by word of mouth, um, during that time, I was working in, a, in, a, in an office and doing a typical office thing. And I, it was a Friday afternoon and there were things I really wanted to get done, had to get done before I left that day, calling people, filling out forms. And I felt my blood pressure rising. I felt like this headache beginning. Um, and in that moment, I happened to look out of the window just in a moment. And I saw a cloud floating across the sky. And it wasn't racing the wind to get ahead. It wasn't dawdling. It was simply going with the pace of the wind. And it conveyed a message to me at that time. And I found myself taking a deep breath, relaxing all that tension I built up without realizing it at the moment. And I ended up getting all my calls done, filling out the forms with nice handwriting, printing, and completing my tasks in a way that was completely relaxed. And accepting the natural order of things. And see, nature has always been my primary teacher. Uh, and that's something I learned from that cloud. And we've all heard the saying, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Okay, it's a common saying in the um, seeker's uh, jargon. But many people misunderstand that to, to mean that if they're somehow deserving or have done all this preparation and initiation, a teacher like Socrates will enter their life and guide them up the path. But what I believe it means is when the student is ready or paying attention, the teacher appears everywhere, even in the shape of a cloud or a tree bending in the wind or this changing cycle of the season in their own time, or even an old gas station mechanic. Uh, you can learn lessons from anyone and anything if you're paying attention. Yeah. Uh, so beautiful. That's so beautiful. There's a there's a concept in in the Vedas and Ayurveda too, called the coexistence of opposites. Right, where you know the two forces have to coexist: dynamic activity and silence, parasympathetic, sympathetic, uh, the winds of a storm in the eye of the storm, the nucleus sitting still with electrons spinning around it, the sun sitting still with planets spinning around it. This idea that if we could mimic that macrocosm inside of us that we would experience that ability to be, you know, calm and therefore in tune with the natural order. And, uh, and therefore, uh, the bigger the eye, the more powerful the winds, the more productive we can be and really find that, that boundless, uh, you know, human potential. Um, did you experience when you studied nature, which is really what Ayurveda is, is about, it's a study of nature itself, did you experience that, um, that, I, that concept of the coexistence of opposites? And does that apply to some of your teachings and your writings or even in your personal life? I'd say both. Uh, it's hard to ignore. And yet it's as if nature and all her lessons are waiting patiently, with mm. infinite patience for us to get the message. And so human speakers like you, like myself, other authors, uh, we do our best to articulate some of this wisdom. Um, you know, Einstein, there's a story about uh, Albert Einstein. He was walking in a, in a woods with a friend when he looked down and saw a little turtle walking along the ground and delighted Einstein picked it up to put it in his pocket and, and take it home to give to his, his niece. And 
Then he hesitated. He stopped. He took it out of his pocket. He put it back down where he found it. And he said, you know, for one man, I think I've tampered enough with nature. So I think he <laughs> did appreciate, uh, he appreciated the, these laws of nature or laws of spirit. They're also called universal laws, as you know. And I think mystics and scientists are both seeking to understand these same laws. They just use different methods of inquiry. Um, and I wrote a book called The Laws of Spirit. I think that it, uh, it, it's reached out to many people uh, where I, I learned these lessons from a, a, a woman sage, an ageless woman sage, while we're walking through the mountains, through the natural environment. She teaches me 12 fundamental uh, universal laws that apply to everyday life. The law of balance, the law of process, the law of presence, of unity, uh, of cycles. So all these laws are there and they're waiting for us. You don't need to read my book. Just pay attention to nature. But my book is a good translation of some of the wisdom of nature. I think it'd be a really good idea for everybody to read, read your books because I actually think that, um, you know, uh, while we all know that going in the forest and being in nature is critical for our health and well-being and there's good science behind that, um, you know, sometimes it's, it's – uh, difficult to still our minds and become aware of what actually is around us and what nature is trying to tell us and what our nature is trying to tell us as well. So I would highly recommend to check out um, Dan's books at danmillman.com. He's got eight, 17 of them, 18 on the way. And Dan, I'm, I'm curious, you know, in kind of in conclusion, um, you know, I think you're, you're, uh, um, you, you've had 40 years of experience. You were a professional athlete, a competitive athlete, world-class athlete. What are you doing these days, you know, you know to keep you, exp you know, excited, inspired, and also physically and athletically? Are you still, are you still, uh, are you still jumping or what's your daily routine look like? Um, well, here in Brooklyn, it's harder to find a trampoline, but I have found a few places and I do jump now and then. I still enjoy doing somersaults. I'm 72, I'm pushing 73. Um, but I, I can go to the Y. I do, I do a workout. It's been my basis for 30 years, literally every day. I call the Peaceful Warrior Workout. And that's one of the online courses at my website. Nice. And by the way, the website is also peacefulwarrior.com. If someone doesn't remember my name and the spelling, they can always look up peacefulwarrior.com. It goes to the same place. And there are some online courses there. Um, the, the, it's a four-minute workout, and it gets every part of the body. And I've been practicing it and teaching it for, well, now a little over 30 years. Um, there's also a four-minute meditation. It's actually about the process of what we let go in the process of dying. And it's, I know of no better way to help us appreciate life. So there's that four minute meditation. Um, but I, yeah, I continue to stay active. I go to the Y also and I meet some old cronies there, you know, um, and, I, and uh, do, uh, do some light weights and swim a bit and a sauna. It's, I, I believe as you get older, uh, we actually need more exercise in terms of need to spend more time exercising generally than younger people, but just a different kind of exercise rather than mixed martial arts. Somebody my age would gravitate toward Tai Chi, for example, um, exercise, age appropriate exercise that suits our body and, and our condition. Um, we, you know, one of the fundamental principles that I teach in this approach to living, I call the peaceful warrior's way living with a peaceful heart, but recognizing there are times we need a warrior's spirit 
And one of the fundamental principles is there is no best book or teacher or philosophy or religion or diet or martial art or exercise system. There is only the best for each of us at a given time of our life. Like it's an experiment, we have to find out what works best for us. So I continue to do that, John, uh, day by day. What, what best serves? How much or how little should I do? What is balanced for me? And that's all I could ask about anyone else. Wow. Wow. In- incredible words of wisdom. I, 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 I totally agree. As we get older, we need to spend more time just keeping our bodies healthy. It just takes more time. And the idea that we are yes. both peaceful and have to be that warrior, you know, to fight and to, to fight the, the, uh, the, uh, the illusion of the mind that keeps us locked into patterns of behavior that don't always serve us. You know, that's the, the, the spiritual warrior that I, that, I, that I love about your work. It just keeps making us look deeper and drive deeper to, 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 to find ways to release a deeper, more beautiful, more loving, peaceful version and more powerful version of ourselves out. Not that powerful is good. It just happens to be who each of us are. I can't thank you enough for taking the time. I know that you're really busy. I, I love your work. I can't encourage enough for everyone to pick up a copy of The Peaceful Warrior. His, 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 one of his more recent books, The Hidden School, is the conclusion of The Peaceful Warrior. So read the whole Peaceful Warrior series. You'll love it. It's a great guide for life and definitely a guide for you know how to find um, real joy in your in your um, physical performance and your workout so it's not just grinding and beating your body up dan thank you so much for your time remember peacefulwarrior.com and um, you be well and take care oh it's been my pleasure john thank you <laughs>